Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, standing in for David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates on the Ukraine invasion, including protests on Russia's streets after Vladimir Putin ordered a partial mobilisation of 300,000 reservists yesterday. Plus, we address Joe Biden's stark warning to Moscow that nuclear war cannot be won. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 22nd of September, day 211. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's associate editor, Dom Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and joining us from the US, our Washington editor, Rosina Sabur. I started by asking Francis for the latest reaction to Putin's speech yesterday. Well, thank you, Claire, and welcome to the chair. It has been a significant 24 hours within Russia itself as a reaction to Putin's speech yesterday. Nearly 1,400 people in 38 Russian cities have been detained already for protesting against the decision to order a wartime mobilisation. That's according to an independent protest monitoring group. There's also been a statement released by the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who's called for mass demonstrations against the mobilisation. And I've been watching footage of these considerable protests this morning and the predictable scenes, as as, as I say, of, of people being arrested is nonetheless quite shocking, just seeing the violence involved in that. And of course, these are very brave people who know that they are very much outnumbered, um, but nonetheless are speaking out in cities such as Moscow and St. Petersburg, as well as others. Um, I think it should be said that the Ukrainian reaction that I've been reading is somewhat critical of these protests, perhaps surprisingly, because many feel that these protests are really too little too late um, and that there's a general feeling that they should have been protesting about the atrocities committed by Russian soldiers rather than them potentially facing being sent to the front line. But nonetheless, as I say, I think this is a significant thing and it's right that we focus on it, even though the numbers are comparatively small, because, as I say, it is an incredibly brave act that these people are doing. They know that they will be imprisoned and uh, Putin, of course, will be very sensitive to any threats posed to him at this very vulnerable and volatile moment. And and so I think we can expect some very lengthy jail sentences for those who have, have taken part in these protests. Just one other thing on this question of, of the reaction to the statement yesterday. 
Natalia, who was on our podcast yesterday, spoke about the one-way flights out of Russia rocketing in price and selling out as a reaction to the announcement. And there's been, as a consequence of this, several European Union members, including Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, all of which border Russia, have said they will not offer refuge to any Russians who are fleeing Moscow's mobilisation. Uh, the Latvian foreign minister said, due to security reasons, Latvia will not issue humanitarian or other types of visas to those Russian citizens who avoid mobilisation. So they're citing security reasons. But I just wanted to posit, really, and perhaps this is something that we can discuss later on in the podcast, um, whether this is actually necessarily the wisest approach. Um, all of these people who are trying to leave to avoid conscription may well be the sort of people that 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 we want to have defect over to the West. Um, not only that, of course, if there is a massive drain and people know that people are fleeing, that may well trigger a, a sort of an avalanche of protest and, and other people trying to leave. It's these kind of actions that can lead to the fall of regimes. Just look at the, what happened with the Berlin Wall when people try and escape uh, tyrannical uh, decisions made by dictators. So, um, as I say, I, I'm, that's not a fully formed thesis, but I think it's something that should be discussed in the West more actively than perhaps it is being at present as to whether this is the right approach or whether perhaps actually instead there should be um, offers made to not only those who are not yet conscripted, but current Russian soldiers to say, look, if you come and join us, at this, at this moment, if you if you leave Russia, if you stop fighting or don't fight, then then we will offer you settlement. That could have a very influential effect indeed. So perhaps something to discuss later. But I'll pause there so that um, Dom can cover the next lot of updates. Thank you very much, Francis. As you say, there are some really shocking videos of ongoing arrests in Russia as a consequence of Putin's speech yesterday, and listeners can see those on our Ukraine Live blog. Dom, I'd like to come to you next. Could you give us a military update from Ukraine, please? Yeah, sure. Hi, Claire. Hi, everybody. Uh, Claire, welcome to the desk. Uh, small shoes to fill. So the big news in the last 24 hours from the from the from the battlefield, um, as were, is the prisoner exchange. We touched on this briefly yesterday. Some more details on that. There have been 215 Ukrainian prisoners of war, i.e., Ukrainian fighters that that were held by Russia, um, exchanged for. Uh, 56 Russian people. I, I sort of hesitate because it's 56 Russian fighters and a chap called Viktor Medvedchuk, which I'll come back to in just a moment. But focusing on the 215 Ukrainians, so these were, well, these are um, 188 people from the Azovstal plant. Remember the Mariel, Mariupol plant, the, the big steelworks there, they held out for uh, weeks in, the, in those underground, um, in, in, the, in the underground sort of labyrinth of tunnels in the plant there, but eventually ran out of food, medicine, ammunition. And uh, and we think, we're not entirely sure, but we think a couple of thousand defenders went into captivity, went into Russian captivity and were held in, we think, the Donetsk region. We don't think many, if any, went back to Russia proper. There have been some exchanges, not many up to now, nothing like these kind of numbers, but uh, the, we, are, we believe 188 from that plant were part of this package. Um, 
There were also uh, partly included that in that number, 108 from the Azov Brigade. The um, I don't think we can call it controversial anymore. When Azov started in 2014, it did have some people with, with connections to right-wing um, um, ideology and organisations. But since then, it has been subsumed, or it was subsumed into Ukrainian armed forces. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know intimately, but people I, I know and trust say that the those traces of any kind of far-right leanings and links uh, have been expunged years ago but uh, i mean it, the reason i, I labor that point is because uh, russia love uh, saying that the azov brigade is a bunch of far-right nazis etc 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 that that's their thin veneer for, for for part of their nazi claim um, but i think that is d- disputed but uh, according to andre yermak who's the head of president zelensky's office 108 people again from this from this overall package of 215 came from azov Interestingly, five of the commanders, five Azov uh, commanders, brigade commanders and above, I think, uh, were part of that. Um, so five, certainly five, but I don't know if they're all brigade commanders. But five, five commanders are, um, are going to remain in Turkey. This deal was brokered partly by Turkey, partly by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince there. So the, um, five of the, Azov, uh, the five Azov commanders are going to remain in Turkey for the duration of the war. Their family will be allowed to visit them there I don't, we don't so we don't know if they're under kind of house arrest or what the deal is in, in, in regards to living working and existing in turkey but they are they're going to be there for the duration of the war and and if that seems a bit uh, well it depends on your on your point of view um but if, if that seems a bit harsh or a bit light i, I mean that's the deal that was the only re- the only way that this could this could work so they're going to stay there uh, and in return as i say russia gets uh, 50 55 fighters um and also uh also this other chapter which i'll come on to in a moment as well as those two, as well as those the ukrainian fighters as part of that 215 released by russia there were five uh, britons two from the u.s one moroccan a croatian and a swede um the britons included Aidan naslin and sean pinner that we've spoken about before we've done numerous stories about um and the so russia were calling them mercenaries and saying that they were they but there was a sham trial and they were sentenced to death by firing squad and it was all it all got very overblown and um unnecessary but you know hugely stressful for the for the people and the families involved and in fact remember that story i did about three weeks ago when i went and visited the ukrainian navy training with the um royal navy for um using underwater drones to to go and have a look for mines and what have you they the, the chap there the commander there he knew he knew um sean pinner personally and knew the family there he was very very uh concerned for him and for the and for his family so the good news is they're home we hear that they arrived back in uk this morning, I don't know about the U.S. Uh, nationals and Moroccan, Croatian, and Swedish people, but uh, they will all be on their way on the way back from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Now, Victor Medvedchuk, who's who's he? So this is the guy who um, was held by Ukraine and has has been uh, the the big fish here, really the big fish to to um, get such a large number back, I think. So Viktor Medvedchuk, he's a 68-year-old. He's a Ukrainian national. He was an oligarch. Uh, he was a, a leading light in a in a pro-Russian uh, party in in Ukraine. He uh, first came to sort of Putin's um, uh, he came to Putin's circle when Medvedchuk was the chief of staff for the former Ukrainian president Leonid Kushma. Um, he ha- had this this pro pro-Russian party, which was 
banned in Ukraine just before the war. Um, he was um, so he was actually placed under house arrest just before the war started, February twenty fourth, or this this current phase of the war. He escaped, uh, but was recaptured in April. Um, faced charges, uh, faced life imprisonment for treason, and a few other bits of you know, a few other charges as well. Um, his daughter Medvedchuk's, um, or rather Putin, is the godfather to Medvedchuk's uh, Medvedchuk's daughter. So you know, close close links there. And it's widely speculated that Medvedchuk was going to be the guy who was going to uh, take over from President Zelensky, and after the after the lightning advance on February the 24th, decapitated the Ukrainian leadership. Medvedchuk was widely seen as, as going to be the, 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 the puppet uh, leader installed by, by Russia. Um, so he's, he's a significant political player, hence his capture was widely remarked at the time, widely reported, and, uh, and why he was able to, is able to draw such a, such a price here. Um, now, how has this gone down in uh, Ukraine and Russia? President Zelensky said at the time when Mariupol had to had to surrender to the Russian forces that they would get all their people back. So this is being hailed in Ukraine as as um, sticking to that promise. Obviously, we don't think everybody is back yet, but uh, this is this is being held very much as a as a as a great piece of of statesmanship um, in order to get get this large number back, and especially the Mariupol defenders, who, uh, as you can imagine, it's it's. Sort of becoming folklore in Ukraine, the, the defence of the Azovstal steel plant. Um, not gone down so well in Russia. So Igor Gherkin, Igor Strelkov, by, by, another, by another name, the former FSB guy. He was um, installed as the, the, the leader of the, the so, so-called Donetsk People's Republic after 2014. He has been very vocal. He said, quote, it's worse than a crime, worse than a mistake. It's just sheer su- stupidity or sabotage. Um, unquote. Now he's quite influential. We've spoken about him recently. Roland Oliphant, our colleague who's out in in Ukraine at the moment, has spoken at length about Igor Gherkin. He's one of these uh, the 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 hardcore right wing ultra nationalist, very very pro Russia, pro the war, very critical of the Kremlin's handling of the war. Um, we think he's part of that band to which Putin's comments yesterday and this partial mobilisation shtick was was directed. Putin had to shore up his domestic side and it's the likes of Gherkin that needed to be silenced needed to be get back into get back into lane get back into the uh, the Kremlin fold so him coming out so quickly and saying that this is a disastrous deal is it, it, I think really undermining for the Kremlin not what they would want especially when it goes hand in hand with all the protests that um, that France has been talking about across the the country so it, we we've got to keep an eye on this and see how these the the right wing groups, these hardcore groups on their social media, Telegram in particular, respond to this deal. But I think that was quite um, quite telling. The exchange was supposed to happen, or we think the exchange happened in the, the northern Ukrainian city of Chernihiv, which which did get um, was overrun by Russia in the early weeks of the war, and then when they were pushed out of the north of the country, Chernihiv was um, was retaken by Ukraine. Interestingly, it happened happened there, sort of fairly near. Um, the, the confluence of the Belarusian, Russian and, and Ukrainian border. Uh, we don't know the mechanics of, of how it happened. We don't know who, uh, how many and who were sent to um, Saudi Arabia, how it happened that they, they got to Turkey. So all this will, will come out in due course. But, um, but very interesting that this has happened. The, the largest prisoner swap so far in the war, um, easily the most significant and, and one that will, that will have, have repercussions and already is having repercussions. And I'm going to take a pause there, Francis. 
Thank you very much for that, Dom. Rosina, if I can turn to you next, as I mentioned earlier, Joe Biden gave an address yesterday at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. Could you take us through the main takeaways from that speech? Yes, thank you, Claire, and hello to everyone else. Um, This was a forceful speech by Joe Biden. He called the war in Ukraine a brutal, needless war. He said it was a war driven by one man. He warned Vladimir Putin that Russia would not win a nuclear war and said the Russian president had displayed reckless disregard by making these overt nuclear threats. This, of course, as we've been talking about, was a speech that came hours after Putin had once again dangled the threat of nuclear weapons in in this rare address he made to the Russian people yesterday. Um, Biden was very deliberative in his response to Putin. He said it slowly, clearly, stressing each word. He said, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Now, some of his comments on arms control alluded to China as much as Russia. He pledged to defend the sovereign rights of smaller nations as equal to those of larger ones, to embrace basic principles like freedom of navigation, respect for international law and arms control. Um, Now, of course, Biden's fiery rhetoric has got a lot of coverage today. But one line that I wanted to pull out, because I don't think it's got enough attention, is this. I'll I'll read out Biden's quote to you. He said, Putin claims he had to act because Russia was threatened. But no one threatened Russia and no one other than Russia sought conflict. Now, that's important because it is a clear indicator of how the US is handling Putin's threats. They are not responding in kind. They are not rising to the bait, so to speak. The Biden administration has, by and large, been very disciplined in its messaging throughout the war. We hear again and again, this is Putin's war, Putin's aggression, Putin's gas hike. That serves two purposes. It carefully avoids putting the US on any sort of path towards direct conflict with Russia, a scenario that Biden has previously described as World War Three. And secondly, it denies the Kremlin a useful soundbite to play at home, any kind of opportunity to whip up support by bolstering its claim that it is defending itself against the West. So even after the nuclear threats that Putin made yesterday and the mobilisation of potentially hundreds of thousands of reservists that he's ordered, the White House is very much downplaying Putin's speech. They have said, look, we haven't seen anything behind the scenes to match that rhetoric from Putin. Um, instead, we've seen the US frame this as a sign of weakness on, on Putin's part, saying this is clearly not going in the direction that he wanted. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Roz. Some great quotes pulled out by you there. I'd like to put another to you. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Wherever you live, whatever you believe, this should make your blood run cold. Some quite strong language used here. I was wondering if I could ask your personal response to the speech. Were you expecting this sort of retort? And do you think that Biden went far enough here? Yeah, so in advance of the UN General Assembly, the White House had somewhat played down the gathering because obviously you know, uh, some of the heavy hitters aren't attending. Vladimir Putin's obviously not there. Xi Jinping's obviously not there. Um, Biden, of course, delayed his appearance at the UN by a day because he was attending the Queen's funeral. He 
didn't even fly straight from London to New York. He came back to Washington for nearly 24 hours before he he went to the UN. Um, we did know that Biden planned to call out Putin with his speech and attempt to bolster the Western coalition of countries supporting Ukraine. But Putin's national address did sharpen the focus of Biden's speech. So we know that the president's aides were hastily making changes to the speech yesterday morning before Biden left his hotel room in in Manhattan. Um, We're told that his secretary of state, Tony Blinken, and the US national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, were both with him and reviewed the speech, making tweaks and emphasizing some portions of it. Uh, In terms of the scope and tone of the speech, it was incredibly scathing. A US president's speech at the UN is typically the marquee event at these general assemblies, but they're usually pretty broad in scope. The US wants to convey several foreign policy priorities in in these kinds of appearances. This speech was remarkable for just how much the attacks on Putin dominated. Um, some have pointed out the last time we saw something akin to this by a, an American president at the UN was actually George Bush's speech in 2002 when he warned of the danger Saddam Hussein posed to Iraq. And we know towards what that speech was tending. Um, so in, in terms of just how personal it was and, and how fiery the rhetoric was, in some ways that's very surprising. In other ways, I suppose... It was almost inevitable with with what we saw in the last few days from Russia. Thanks so much for that. To put another quote to you, Biden said, the United States is ready to pursue critical arms control measures. What exactly does that mean and what would it look like? As I was just saying, the, the kind of broad intent of these speeches is to convey messages to several foreign adversaries as, as well as to ally states. So... You know, when the, the full quote, I think, talked about pursuing um, critical arms control measures. And then he went on to say a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And then he went on to call out Russia specifically for shunning commitments to the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Now, we know from senior aides to Biden that that line was added to Biden's speech after the US heard Putin's address. So there was a broader intent behind that message. It's obviously it's aimed at Russia, yes, but also at China, who Biden accused of not being transparent about its nuclear buildup in his speech yesterday as well. And also at Iran, who the US is currently trying to negotiate a nuclear agreement with. It's worth noting that that line in Biden's speech that's got so much uh, pickup, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. That was first used by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985, when they reaffirmed their commitment to the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. So Biden's doing a few things here. He's very much laying down a marker to Russia, but also saying we have been in this position before. We can, we can contain this. There is a, you know, there is a, an, an alternative approach here. So it's, it's, it's a fine line, I think, he's treading here in, in, this, in this speech. And moving on from that, Biden also called for reforms to the UN Security Council. In practical terms, what exactly would his proposed reforms look like and how would they benefit Ukraine? Yeah, it was very vague, wasn't it? (laughs) We're not entirely clear what mechanisms would be used here for the reforms and specifically what reforms he would like to see. Um, The Security Council is obviously, as we know, the UN's most powerful body. 
Um, Biden was sort of implicitly suggesting that Russia's presence in the council was hindering it from from being credible and effective. Um, As a permanent member of the council, Russia has veto power. We've uh, seen Russia vote against multiple UN resolutions condemning its its actions and and attempting to push it to withdraw troops from Ukraine. Um, Biden did stop short of actually calling for Russia to be expelled from the Security Council. Sorry, from the Security Council. But he did put his support behind increasing both the number of permanent and non-permanent members. We know that the US has, has for some time signaled that perhaps Germany and Japan should be joining the council. In his speech yesterday, he singled out the need for representation from from Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. That's fairly new in terms of the, the US actually signaling something should be done in the nearer term. This could have two impacts on Russia. One, it potentially dilutes its power and, and, and efficacy in the Security Council. And for another, it could be a way for the US to keep nations whose economies may be more reliant on Moscow on side with its aims. The other key element of the Biden's speech yesterday was all about bolstering this, this unity, this coalition of nations who are backing Ukraine against Russian aggression. That's obviously going to get much more difficult as winter approaches, particularly for nations that are more reliant on Russian energy than others. So offering this kind of carrot to the to, to a number of countries and saying, look, here, here is a, an opportunity to, to sit on the Security Council, either as permanent or non-permanent member, that has... Uh, strategic benefits in how the US is trying to isolate Russia. Ross, can I, can I jump in? Hi, it's, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for, for joining us. It's really fascinating to hear about these uh, these, these big summits as they're, as they're going on. I'm really interested in China's position here. Now, you say President Xi is not there. Have you got any feel yet for, for China's position or... Um, or separately, are you able to give us a, a feel for how these summits work at, at, at the UN? Is there lots of sort of snuggling around corridors and other you know, meetings inside rooms, or is it all really scripted? I'm, I'd be very keen to hear of any kind of mood music, any body language about from the Chinese delegation, who they're speaking to, that kind of thing. Just be really interested in that. Yeah, yeah, great to to chat with you, Dom. Um, I offer a, a quick disclaimer at the top. I'm based in Washington, D.C., so I am not... Um, present at the UN at the moment. Um, I did have a chat with our New York correspondent, JC Ensor, yesterday um, to get to get a bit of a feel for, for what the Assembly's been like this year. Um, obviously, this is one of the first big um, UN summits since COVID, uh, first big in-person event. Um, and obviously, as we've just talked about, the, the, the chief adversaries that Biden was aiming at, of course, weren't, weren't present here. Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping to not attend. Um, the US obviously denied a lot of Russians um, visas to attend the UN conference as well. And just in terms of practicalities, there's big absence in the room. The US envoy to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she, ahead of the summit, said, look, the Russians shouldn't expect this to be business as usual when they arrive. They will be isolated. They will be condemned in the Security Council and so on. Um, a lot of the kind of traditional trappings are missing from from this summit. So there will be no traditional lunch with ministers from the permanent five members of the Security Council. 
you know, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is one of the few Russians allowed to travel to New York, granted a visa. He's only due to speak on Saturday when most other ministers will have left. So if there is a walkout when Lavrov approaches the election, it's questionable how much impact that will have in terms of the atmosphere in the room. But we've also seen a shift from other countries, you know, like India, for example, long-standing ally, ally of Moscow, which has tended to abstain in votes on Ukraine. They voted to allow Zelensky to address the UN. That, that um, address happened yesterday, too. Um, we've also seen Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, publicly scolding Putin, telling him, you know, today's time is not time for war, or whatever the, the exact quote was. Um, we've also seen Putin say he's aware of in, in India's concerns. He's also aware that Xi Jinping is not particularly happy with the current situation. We know that he's, he said he's got the Chinese president has questions and concerns about the war in Ukraine. They're clearly not happy about the potential economic impact this will have as well. So it's it's quite an unusual conference we're having this year. Yeah, I um. I've got a, an email just in the last few minutes, actually, from the Foreign Office here in London saying that the UN Security Council meeting will focus on Ukraine at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern time, ooh, three o'clock over here. So uh, I'm going to be going to be watching that. And, I, and I'm told that Lavrov will speak there or certainly we are. Uh, James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary, is tabled to speak uh, to be the, the 14th speaker. And that is supposedly after Lavrov at number 13. So if he doesn't get a chance, if he's not speaking on till Saturday at the, in, the, in the General Assembly, we might actually um, hear from him in an hour and a half's time, which would be, which would be fascinating. But just m- more broadly, so you're, you're in Washington. What is the mood in the States uh, more broadly, and in particular around, around Washington, in the last, over, the, over the, the course of the war, but in the last couple of weeks with, the, um, with this amazing... Uh, amazingly effective counter-offensive by by Ukraine. Have you detected a change in mood amongst the the, the people you're chatting to and amongst the uh, uh, around uh, around Washington at all? Yes, the the key takeaway from Ukraine's surprising success is look what we've been doing here is working and it, it's it's vindicated the level of U.S. support, the huge huge level of U.S. military financial aid all the rest of it that has has been sent over the last few months. This this really is a, a, an, an issue that has bipartisan support. Congress is fully behind um, these huge aid packages that we've seen. Um, Biden's obviously speaking about the fact that this is proving that the US has taken the, the, the correct course, because obviously this huge level of spending at a time when you know, there are bread and butter cost issues for most Americans. It is it could be it could be quite problematic, but actually the events that we've seen in the last few weeks are, are being sold as well, yeah, this this has proof that our approach is working. And in terms of the the reaction in the last sort of twenty four hours from when Putin delivered his national address, we, we do know, as I mentioned earlier, that Biden's speech was quite hastily rewritten, lines were stressed, other additions were made. But in terms of the behind the scenes briefings that are going on, the White House did a briefing yesterday about all of the, the UN meetings and speeches that Biden's been 
been delivering and the message in in all of these background briefings that the White House are giving is very much, look, we're alarmed by Putin's rhetoric, but this isn't atypical. We have seen this before. We're not changing our approach just yet. And actually something that John Kirby, who's a longtime Pentagon spokesperson, he's now in a national security role at the White House. Um, he, he, he's the guy who's been leading a lot of the briefings that the US has done on the situation in Ukraine. So really a, a clear authority on, on the US stance on, on Russia and Ukraine at the moment. And he, he made some interesting comments yesterday. He said, clearly Putin knows he's on his back foot. And he sort of dismissed the impact of, of the additional reservists that Putin's calling up on the battlefield. And another key thing that he said, he said, whatever number they're in and wherever they are in Ukraine, we will continue to support Ukrainian fighters. And that the wherever they are is interesting because, of course, nu- the, Putin's nuclear threats you know, also pertain to any annexed areas of Ukraine that Russia then claims as Russian territory. So the US is very much signaling throughout all of this that yes, we're we're taking Putin seriously, but this isn't a time to be escalating. This isn't a time for us to change our approach at all. And you, you know, we're not we're not ramping up on nuclear threats in, in response at all. Thank you very much for that, Roz. Francis, I believe you have some thoughts on the renewed allyship seen at yesterday's UN conference between the USA and the UK. So please do take us away. Thanks, Claire. Yes, well, we saw yesterday the first proper sit down between Liz Truss and Joe Biden. Uh, and lots of what we would expect in in their remarks afterwards and the readout, which is a summary of, of, of what they've said. But I'll just read some quotes that are relevant to Ukraine. And it's worth saying, of course, that they did discuss more than just Ukraine, but of course that was at the centre of, of the discussion. So Liz Truss pledged to work more closely with the US on a range of issues, including Russia's war in Ukraine. She said, we are steadfast allies. We want to work more closely with the US, especially on energy security, on our economic security, but also in reaching out to fellow democracies around the world to make sure that democracies prevail and that we protect the freedom and future of our citizens. In response to this, Joe Biden said, you are our closest ally in the world. So as I say, the usual um, kind of things that we expect to see. Um, But I was struck by one remark that was made in the readout by the president when he said that he would be working with with Britain, uh, not only on Ukraine, but also on the threat posed by, by China. And I thought that was interesting, given all of the discussions we've had on this podcast over recent months about this shift towards the, the threat posed by China as a consequence of Putin's war. But also yesterday's podcast, where we spoke about the urgency, perhaps, of the West to persuade those countries that are closer to Russia to intervene and condemn the rhetoric that Putin put out. And I thought that if they were really working closely behind the scenes with Chinese diplomats to get some kind of joint statement to condemn the kind of rhetoric we've seen coming out from Russia, then to mention explicitly in a readout 
with of what took place in the meeting with the British Prime Minister about the threat posed by China doesn't seem like what you would do. That would be scrapped from the record, as it were, or struck from the record. So I wonder whether that's indicative of the fact that we shouldn't really be expecting any kind of statement from China or other countries that are closer to Russia, which, if true, obviously does have consequences, because as Dom made the point very eloquently yesterday, I think there is a very strong case here where we, the West's hand, in a sense, is very clear. We know what we're saying and we're going to continue to support Ukraine. But what would happen if China pulls the plug? It's going to be hugely influential and significant on those who are around Putin as they see the lack of support, not only from the West, but also from other countries. Um, so I think it's unfortunate if we're not going to get any statement from them. But I think, and this is my question um, for Rosina, is we've obviously seen that Nancy Pelosi is now involved in these um, negotiations around Armenia. She's going to be visiting there. Uh, what is, you think, We've and we also saw, of course, Joe Biden's remarks on Taiwan, which are more robust than we've seen in the past, saying that, he, that they would support um, uh, or, or would, would support Taiwan if there were some sort of invasion, the suggestion being militarily. So I just wondered if you were able to summarise briefly what you see as being the shift in American foreign policy since Putin's invasion back in February? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Um, I suppose from my lens of looking at things as th through um, covering US politics for, for a few years here in Washington, I would, I would go further back and say the shift happened with um, the end of the Trump administration and and the entrance of the Biden administration, that was a real um, reset in terms of foreign policy. Um, and, and Biden made clear that he, he wanted the US to be back on the global stage and seen as a leader on the global stage. Um, the, the examples you've mentioned there, they all go to the heart of Biden's kind of philosophical, his kind of ideology. He, he really, truly believes that the world is in an, this existential battle between democracies and um, autocracies. He keeps referencing that, whether it's to a domestic audience when he's talking about Donald Trump and that faction of the Republican Party, or when he's talking about Putin in Ukraine and Xi Jinping and his approach towards Taiwan. Um, now, Nancy Pelosi's visit um, is interesting because it does suggest that the, the other downside for for Russia with this war in Ukraine, as well as isolation on the world stage, is that it, others are capitalising on on the fact that Russia is so heavily focused on this war. So we saw Xi Jinping largely took the, the dominated the, the stage at this uh, Eurasian Heads of State summit that they had in Uzbekistan. You've seen Nancy Pelosi making a trip, sort of capitalising on Russia's lack of focus on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Um, and also, again, Taiwan, that's another priority for this administration in terms of asserting the importance of democracies, but also strategic importance of the Taiwan Straits. And you know, Biden has made clear that that is a priority for this administration. 
Thank you very much for that, Ros. Francis, I believe you have something to add. Well, I just wanted to, uh, because I know we're, we're, we'll shortly have to wrap up soon. There was one thing I think it was worthy that we should discuss, because one of the questions that we touched on on the podcast yesterday was this question about uh, would definitively Russia count these territories that are going to be having referenda next week, uh, starting this weekend, as Russian territory explicitly, uh, if they do vote, vote in inverted commas, to uh, support um, rejoining uh, Russia. Now, we have had, I, I think, a definitive answer to that um, from Dmitry Mendedev, uh, the former Russian president, who has said that strategic nuclear weapons can be used to defend new regions. So pretty black and white there. He said um, that referendums planned by Russian installed and separatist authorities in large swathes of Russian territories will take place and there is no going back. The Western establishment and all citizens of NATO countries in general need to understand that Russia has chosen its path. So obviously it doesn't necessarily change anything profoundly, but this was one of the sort of uncertainties of yesterday. Uh, and I think we have an answer to that now, that the intention is, from the Russian perspective, that as soon as these uh, territories conduct the sham referenda, that they will then be classified as Russian territory. And thereby, if those territories are attacked by Ukraine, then they would see this as justification for using nuclear weapons. Now, it's not to say that they would, but that is how they are trying to stake their claim at this moment. So um, no ambiguity there from Russia on that point. But I think Don might have something else on on uh, on, on a secret drone. <laughs> um, yes, I, I mean, I, I might save the details for tomorrow because um, wading back down into, into tech after really interesting political stuff. Uh, might be a bit clunky, but just just as an aside, we'll cover it more tomorrow. Mainly because there's not so much, not a lot of detail at the moment. But worth noting that uh, that an uncrewed surface vessel, basically a, a, a drone uh, on the sea about the size of a kayak, has been found on a beach near Sevastopol in Crimea, about 150 nautical miles from Ukrainian waters. So, quite what it was doing there. Uh, I, I say, I'll talk. I'll talk more about it tomorrow. But it, it had cameras on it. It had all sorts of stuff on it. it was, there was a suggestion it might actually be might actually have a warhead of some description, might be a suicide drone, um, and whether or not this is uh, causing uh, consternation in, in the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, we don't know. But I will I will come back with more tomorrow. It was very interesting. It's on, if you have a look at, so Covert Shores, H. Sutton, great, a great naval um, defence watcher. Um, have a look at his website, also navalnews.com. There's some really good image, images there of this thing. We don't quite know what it is. The Russians took it out to sea and blew it up, which suggests they think it might have been, it might have, have some sort of explosive device on it. But I'll talk talk more about it tomorrow when hopefully we know more. But I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll take a, I'll stop there. Looking forward to hearing more on the drone front tomorrow, Dom. Uh, for today, as we're sadly running out of time, could I please come to you for final thoughts? Well, my final thought would be to keep an eye on two places. Firstly, New York, because the, the UN Security Council will be uh, starting their chat on Ukraine in about an hour and 10 minutes, worth worth live streaming that. We'll be talking about that tomorrow. Really keen to hear what's going on there. And um, and the other and the other pronouncements and mood music from New York. But also, please do keep an eye on what's happening in Russia. These These, these lines of people trying to get out of the country now, I think it's it's beyond doubt that this is very much as a result of Putin's 
mobilization speech as young men trying to get out of get out of Russia. And do keep an eye on the on the the right wing, the hardcore ultra nationalist comment led by the likes of Igor Gherkin in response to the prisoner deal, because Putin may have thought he's bought himself some time here with this with this this announcement about mobilization and rattling the nuclear nuclear tin again. But if these guys are still on his back, hounding him about the conduct of this war on a new flank now about prisoner exchanges, then he's got all sorts of problems piling up. So so keep an eye on all of that. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Um, over to you, Francis, for your final thoughts. Sure. Well, I just thought I would read from the Telegraph's leader yesterday. Um, it was published yesterday evening, but it's in today's paper because I think it summarises the state of play as things stand very well. So I'll, I'll just read from it directly. So this starts talking about the measures of Putin yesterday. These are the desperate measures of an increasingly beleaguered leader whose hopes of a quick and easy victory in Ukraine were shattered weeks ago. Putin may call up more troops, but even his elite forces have failed against a determined and well-armed opponent, and there is no reason to believe the attrition will not continue. The big question that Western strategists need to answer is what happens when it is apparent to the Kremlin and the Russian people that there is nothing but more misery lying ahead. Early predictions of a coup against Putin have sadly come to naught. If anything, the threats to his leadership come from hardline nationalists who want the war prosecuted with even greater brutality. Moreover, the Kremlin controls the message. And while people know the casualties have been high, he is able to use the media to revive the old but deeply held Russian grievance that the motherland is under threat from the West. The fact that this is a preposterous assertion does not make it any less compelling in Russia itself, where suffering at the hands of Western powers down the centuries has been mythologised. At the UN General Assembly, Western leaders lined up to denounce Putin, but they need to be backed by China, India, Turkey and big non-aligned nations who might usually prefer to stay neutral. No one can afford to stand idly by while threats to use nuclear weapons are made. The whole world needs to make it absolutely clear to Putin what the consequences of widening this war will be and prepare for just a prospect. It is no longer sensible simply to trust that this deranged threat to use nuclear weapons is a bluff. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show in your country. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. And thank you to all those who direct message us on Twitter from the farthest corners of the globe. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. 